0: can play a strategic role in reaching the EU's energy food, uh, energy and food security goals. My name is Dave Keating. I'm a journalist based here in Brussels. I'm going to be walking us through today's conversation. Now, we know that in all of our Brussels policy discussions these days, there is a big elephant in the room, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It's highlighted the urgency of reducing the EU's dependence on fossil fuels And supporting its energy and food independence. Even before the invasion the EU has been working toward this goal for climate reasons. Last year's Fit for 55 package envisions significant regulatory changes for a variety of areas including the biofuel sector which we're here to talk about today. These include revamps of the Renewable Energy Directive, CO2 standards for cars, the revamp of the Effort Sharing Regulation and the Emissions Trading System with the Impossible Inclusion of Transports, and the Energy Taxation Directive. Now, with the European Commission's recent communications on energy security and food security unveiled as a result of the war in Ukraine, those stakes are even higher. Today's event, ahead of the European Parliament's second attempt to vote on the Fit for 55 legislation, will tackle the key questions confronting the EU as it drives toward carbon neutrality. How can the EU scale up renewables in transport in order to meet its emission reduction goals? What role will low carbon liquid fuels play in the transport energy mix? And what will be the economic and societal impact of the EU's climate proposals? Here with us to answer, we have an excellent panel of experts to talk about this with us today. So here in the room, we have Patrick Pagani, Senior Policy Advisor at the Farmers and Agricultural Cooperatives Organization, COPA and COJECA. And then we have Valerie Kohl. European Director for Regulatory Affairs on Alcohol and Ethanol at Terios and President of the European Renewable Ethanol Association, ePure. Then, joining us remotely by video, we have Bernd Kupker, Policy Officer for Decarbonization and Sustainability of Energy Sources at the European Commission's Energy Department. We have center-right Finnish MEP Hennifer Kunen, who is a member of the European Parliament's Transport and Industry Committees. And we have Adrian O'Connell, a researcher at the International Council on Clean Transportation. Thank you to all of us, all of you, for joining us today. Uh, You guys are also going to be able to participate in the conversation, whether you're here in the room or watching online. You can ask your questions to the panelists using Slido. So the hashtag you want to use on Slido is MindTheGap, the the name of the event. Let's go ahead and test that now. So if you have your phone, you can either use the Slido app or you can log on to sli.do and type in the hashtag MindTheGap. And let's get things started with a first survey question. I'd like to get a feeling about who's here in the room, who's watching online. So tell us who you are. If you log in with that Mind the Gap hashtag, so we want to know, are you an EU official? Are you someone working in the energy sector, in the agriculture sector, transport sector? Are you an NGO, a journalist, academia, or other? Uh, I'll give you some time to put in your answers there, and then we'll find out in a bit who we're dealing with here in the room and online. So before I get started, I did want to say, I think that this is, as we're heading toward this vote. I mean, this is such a pivotal time for this topic that we're talking about. I think not only has the Russian invasion given us new impetus to really try to solve these problems, but of course we have the long-running problem of climate change, which policymakers both at EU level and national levels are really trying to grapple with. So I think we've got our results in here. I'm going to go ahead and stop the survey. So Uh, Let's see if we have the results on there. If I hit the I, show results. Uh, I don't know if it's appearing. There we go. Okay, so forty uh, percent of you are people working in the energy sector, uh, and then we have a mixture of people from the policy world, in the agriculture sector, transport sector, journalists. I might be the only one in the room. Let's see, or maybe the journalists in the room are too shy to say. Uh, so I think it's a pretty good mix. There also, I think, not shown on the screen, there is academia at twelve uh, percent and other at twenty-one percent. People who don't fit neatly in any category. Um, Bernd, I'd like to turn to you first, uh, because obviously the Commission has been working uh, very hard on these issues. Uh, what do you think? Can, can biofuels play a part in the EU's efforts to increase both its energy and its food supply independence as we're working toward those goals at this critical time?
1: Well, I think um, you, the, the Commission position on, on, on these matters is rather well known. I mean, we we consider that biofuels have a considerable role in in, um, providing fuels in in sectors um, which are difficult to electrify, together with with other fuels um, of non-bottage orange, or hydrogen-based fuels. However, when you make the the link to the food sector, I guess you're also talking not um, only about biofuels in general, but also about um, biofuels produced from food and feed crops. And there, you're aware that uh, the commission um, is a bit more skeptical about the, um, the possibilities or the, the potential of these fuels to um, to contribute towards our um, decolonization objectives and um, their contribution should be limited. Whether they have a positive impact um, on food supply, I mean, it's, it is... Um, Complex question. I think you can take it from from two angles. Um, on the one hand, I mean, if you create demand for food and feed crops, then this can provide impetus and uh, in the sector to and helps the sector to invest into um, yeah producing more food and feed crops. This can have positive results. But our discussion about indirect land use change has also shown that it can have negative impacts, and there is among where our main concerns are coming from. However, then we also have um, on the other side, then the question, what happens in the short term? And um, in the short term, you could argue that, that having biofuels or food or feed biofuels provides uh, the opportunity to, to reduce the use of them in the time of, of crisis. Uh, in order to make them available and for others but we consider that overall that in in, uh, in a situation that's where uh, we are where we see that that we um, might challenge or might have made a challenge in providing provision of food supply in particular in um, yeah, in developing countries that uh, it might be necessary to to reduce demands or de- um, de- reduce, obligations um, and the use of food and feed-crop-based biofuels um, in order to make this, this uh, feedstock available and for, uh, for human uses. May let's round it up very briefly. Thanks a lot, Barons. Hannah, let's
0: turn to you. Uh, I discussed a bit the, the context of Russia's invasion. Do you think that Russia's invasion should change the way the EU thinks about biofuels in particular?
2: No, I don't think so, because I think this uh, crisis and the war really underlines now the importance of getting rid out of uh, Russian fossil fuels. And it means that we have to invest in Europe much more to all uh, low carbon sources of energy and also the biofuels. But of course the production has to be sustainable and we have to be very careful with this whole value chain as I think in the whole energy sector and when we speak about transport I think we should look the whole, whole value chain and the whole picture when we look at how low, low carbon uh, um, it is. But in the short term I can see impacts also to biofuels. For example now in Finland because I'm, I'm representing Finnish citizens in the European Parliament and Finland and Sweden, they have been really front runners in using biofuels in transport sector. And in fact, in Finland, we have a blending mandate uh, that means that 19.5 percent of the fuel should be renewables, should be biofuels nowadays. But the government made a decision that uh, temporary, uh, they were now decreasing the target to 12 percent from 19.5 to 12 percent because the price is now so high. And uh, the fuels are so expensive because of the energy crisis that the government saw that it's important now to make some temporary actions here and a little bit lower the level also how much uh, we have to plant these uh, renewables to our fuels in Finland. But I think in the long term anyway, we shouldn't lower the targets. I, I see that there is role for biofuels also in the future. And so I'm not afraid of electrifying all the transport because I see that there's very different regions in Europe and also different transport modes. And of course we can use also biofuels to our current fleet so we don't have to change all the cars. So I think that there's many reasons why we should invest to in biofuels. But of course we have to also be very careful that it has to be sustainable to production. But I think really the Russian invasion and the war is underlining now the importance of investing to all low-carbon energy sources in Europe to biofuels and to renewable fuels, but also, I think, to nuclear power, because that is also the way how we can produce electricity.
0: Let's go online to Adrian from ICCT next. Adrian, when we're thinking about the uh, Fit for 55 proposals that are now on the table, what role do you think biofuels will have in Europe's transport future under the the scenario envisioned by Fit for 55?
3: Thank you, Dave. I hope you can hear me okay. Yes, we can. Perfect. Well, yeah, hi from Ireland today. I'm sorry I'm not there in Brussels, but it's a pleasure to be speaking here today on on, uh, behalf of the ICCT I'm um, based in Berlin. I just briefly in case people are wondering who I am, I worked for the Joint Research Center, the European Commission's Research Center on the OED and before that I was heavily involved in in industry, working for a biofuel association in, in Brussels and also setting up a factory in Ireland. Um, so I think, it's clear that uh, the fit for 55 from the proposals that biofuels will continue to have a large role in eu transport but we think that there are still key decisions to be made in the trilogues which are going to have profound effects on both the economic and the climate uh, uh, impacts of the policy so i have three basic points with well, the first one being that we think that uh, we suggest that, that, that we want to be ensure that the Fit for 55 proposal doesn't increase the demand for food-based biofuels. Um, we do think there are, are, are many promising aspects of the proposals, but we do think we need to be cautious. Um, so we think that the phase out of high-risk biofuel feedstocks and a cap on the food and feed-based biofuels are positive, but we are concerned about the intermediate crops. Uh, it's currently loose, very loosely defined. And um, it, it basically, it can, can include or it does include now uh, soybean oil from Brazil and, and corn from Brazil. Um, and these are already well integrated into the global food markets. So um, our modelling suggests that uh, these, these feedstocks could basically come into the market in, in huge volumes. Um, and increase the demand for for food and feed crops uh, you know uh, without intending to um also we think that uh, uh, beyond the explicit targets for advanced biofuels e fuels the the, the 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 intermediate crops will uh, under the their present uh, wording would tend to be the the pathway of choice um we do think that that um those feedstocks should be, under the food and feed cap, in order to maintain the integrity of the RED2's uh, greenhouse gas targets, we think that the the or the refuel aviation policy is going in a, in, in a good direction and is trying to learn from the mistakes of the the, the previous biofuel policies. So uh, it's critical to keep that the focus of of the refuel aviation on advanced pathways. Um, the second point I'd like to make is that advanced biofuels advanced biofuels, can reduce climate impacts without exacerbating food price impacts. Um, so we see that, as, as David mentioned, the war in Ukraine has stressed the oil and gas markets, but it's also increased the cost of food. And we don't think that now is the right time to, to, to be doubling down on food and, and feed-based biofuels and increasing competition for food and cropland. Um, I, I'm sorry if you hear a little bit of squealing in the background. I'm, I'm calling from my, my family home in Ireland, and my nephew is having a bit of a meltdown at the moment, but he's with his dad. Um, so um, just so, my second point is on advanced biofuels, how they can help without putting pressure on um, uh, food price impacts. Um, and uh, so if we're not very careful, um, like we know, for example, that advanced biofuels can be made from waste and residues. And these generally have better greenhouse gas savings than first generation crop based biofuels. But we have to be careful with some of the the waste and residues, they do have displacement effects. So if you gather them all up and start to make biofuels out of even greater volumes of them, the people who are using that material now are going to need to get material from somewhere else. So we're worried about that displacement effect, which could increase the demand for palm oil so uh if we we just need to be careful about about that because it, what could happen then is if we simply uh fall on those easy easy targets, we could crowd out the fuels we need for decarbonization by 2050. And the third point is that uh, biomass resources are constrained, so we need to m- ensure that they're they're used wisely, and we know we have a limit uh, to the amount of domestic biomass resources we have. Uh, we think that capping the contribution of waste oils to the marine and aviation sectors will have uh, be positive because it will reduce the, the incentive to import additional waste oils. We think the the 2030 targets look achievable, and uh, it is, this is especially helpful if the light-duty uh, light-duty vehicle fleet continues its path towards uh, electrification. We think the long-term targets for the aviation and marine are going to exceed the likely biofuel resources which we have. Therefore, we think that we see these, these sectors relying increasingly on e-fuels. And uh, our modeling shows that uh, leading out into the future, we can get those e-fuels down to a price of under two euros a liter. Um, so I hope that was pretty clear. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks, Adrian. And no worries about the baby. I think it's a nice reminder of the, the next generation for whom we are doing all of this in the end. Um, Patrick, let's turn to you here next in the room. So you're coming from the agricultural perspective on all of these issues. What is the connection between biofuels, agriculture, and
4: food security? Thanks, Dave, for, for the question and for, for inviting me. I think it's important, and we heard from the representative of the commission, before to put the the context, in the sense we are in a Fit for 55 package, so 13 legislative proposals uh, which actually will modify also the on the ground with how farmers will need to work for the next uh many years or next decade and this is an important starting element so farmers are engaged in will need to be engaged in the, in this transition and to put it on the ground to put it in place uh, we see that actually farmers, foresters, and cooperatives are, are willing and aim to contribute to this ambitions of, ambitious objective of the Commission. So climate neutrality, we want to contribute by producing biomass, contributing to bioeconomy, uh, increasing the carbon sinks, uh, and also, and also maintaining and producing food. So in line also with the uh, climate ag- uh, well Paris Agreement, which underlines Article 2, that that actually, climate activity, climate legislation, needs to be done in a way that doesn't threaten uh, production. This being said, in relation between food and uh, and uh, and foods, it's clear that. We see it on the positive side. So that aspect, that representative of the Commission was was indicated. Uh, we think actually that uh, biofuels can contribute also to, to food security in a way that uh, to support the production of uh, protein by, by pro, byproducts, uh, avoiding so imports, resu- reducing dependencies, and also at the end also contributing to reducing dependency from fossil fuels. So we are on this side. We don't think there should be a polarised approach. They can. They can. Uh, go together, and also, and it's important. Farmers and cooperatives and foresters need predictability, need long-term uh, vision. Uh, we are already uh, facing the consequence of climate change. We see, for example, well, ten days ago in Brussels, in, in France, in in Germany, in, uh, in Italy, we had strong rains. Today, after a few days, we have uh, heat waves. This is very concrete. How farmers every day need to take. Uh, take stock of the the situation. And so predictability in the legislation is is key in this respect. Thanks.
0: Valérie, um, when we hear often from critics who say that uh, Europe shouldn't use biofuels to meet its emissions reduction targets at the same time that there's a global food shortage, we've been hearing that for a while. How do you respond to that criticism? Hmm.
5: Well, it's, it's not a new criticism, I would say. The food versus fuel debate has existed for quite a while. And uh, many times over, we have uh, demonstrated with documented facts that the uh, industrial, uh, agricultural, economic reality is food and fuel, and no opposition.
4: And there are three reasons for
5: that. The first one is, the production of bioethanol generates high-protein, GMO-free animal feed. And that is very important. Why? Because the EU is relying on imports, uh, mostly from
4: uh, Latin America,
5: Uh, so it's important. Second point, bioethanol is also produced in the EU in total synergy in biorefineries uh, of food production, uh, sugar and starch production. It's quite clear that, given the recent changes I'm talking uh, and of the sugar regime, if the uh, biofuel market would be undermined, it is clear that these productions, food productions, would be at stake. And the third point is, um, by
4: diversifying outlets,
5: of uh, agricultural materials, you strengthen farmers' revenues. And, and if you don't pay the farmers decently, they stop producing. That's um, a given fact, and it's uh, already something that happens in the EU. So by strengthening their revenues, um, you secure food production in the EU. That's, uh, that's very simple. The second comment I would make is we have to decarbonize the economy. Transport is 25%. The Commission has estimated itself that by 2030, 80% of the cars on the roads in the the EU will be internal combustion engine vehicles running on liquid fuels. So,
4: bioethanol,
5: is sustainable,
4: it's available,
5: it's affordable. (laughs) That's very important. It's affordable. You don't have to change your car to use it. You can use it now. Um, So that's what we are saying. If you want to achieve, the EU is to achieve its 2030 targets, ambitious target to decarbonize, and you don't address the bulk of the cars on the roads, then how are you going to, you know, meet the targets? So that's, that's something very important. We need to decarbonize the existing fleet. It's very well to think about, you know, one day when uh, everyone will be uh, running on electric cars, but that's not going to happen anytime soon. And I was of the understanding that the urgency was um, urgent. <laughs> we have to reduce, any, uh, you know, we have to reduce our, our emissions. And that brings me to my third point. Um, these cars, they will be running. Okay? There's no way you're going to ask people to keep their cars in the garage. They will be on the road. So either they run on fossil fuels, either they run with a mixture of and acinol sustainable produced in the EU, stimulating jobs, etc. And, most importantly, reducing our imports of oil because that's another challenge we have triggered by the Ukrainian war or Russian war, better yet, in Ukraine. We have to stop importing oil. We have to um, stop importing. We have to strengthen our energy dependency. So we have to use what we have locally. That's what we have to do if we are sensible. So, if we don't do that,
4: these cars,
5: they will be running on fossil oil, and therefore, I mean, it's pure math, don't, don't doesn't need to, to be very smart to understand that, but then you will have to import more oil. And that's not in coherence with what we need to do. Uh, that's, that's just a pure, pure calculation. So... What we're saying, and that's exactly what we, we said, and that's the purpose of this campaign, Mind the Gap. You know, we, we have a gap. We need to fill the gap. And so in order to fill the gap, legislation needs to be in coherence with the gap we need to fill. Otherwise, it's going to be filled with uh, oil. If you take the 2021 um, consumption of bioethanol in the EU last, uh, I mean last time, in 2021, it was 52 million hectolitres of uh, bioethanol and uh, with that we um, avoided 9 million tons of uh, CO2 which is quite a lot and most importantly we displaced 3.6 billion liters of fossil oil which we did not have to import 3.6 billion if we were to generalize Ethan in Europe we could easily double those numbers and that's the thing there is a general understanding because you know people like to exaggerate but the idea is not to decarbonize everything with ethanol or with biofuels what we are saying is there is a role to play in a diversification in a diversified mix of solutions there is a role to play for those productions, and if we do it well, wisely, in a balanced manner, it's, it's not about food versus fuel. Nobody wants to use raw materials uh, to use in the cars when people next door uh, can't afford food, of course. But we have to make it in such a way that we don't create more problems than we solve uh, them by doing hasty decisions or by not looking at the bigger picture. Because that's a very complex issue. It is complex. But you can't resolve and summarize a complex issue with just um, a simple question, a simple, which even sounds like an ultimatum, food versus fuel. It's much more complex than that.
4: And I hope...
5: That decision-makers, because today is the time when we have to take very important and far-reaching decisions, I hope that the decision-makers will follow the fact-based approach, which is food and fuel, and not so much the emotional one, which is food versus fuel.
0: I want to come back to this uh, food versus fuel issue because we had a lot of questions come in on it already. I will definitely be putting those forward. Uh, But let's take a quick break now because while we're on Slido, and again, a reminder, you guys also in the room can ask your questions on Slido. I want to do a second poll. Uh, I'd like to get a sense from the audience how you're feeling about Fit for 55 right now. So the poll question is, in terms of achieving EU climate goals, the Fit for 55 proposals are too ambitious, not ambitious enough, or just right? Um, So go ahead and answer that if you think Fit for 55's going too far, not far enough, or just right, the perfect amount. Okay, as the answers are coming in here, it looks like a fairly even split so far. Okay, well, we're seeing, uh, I think, a large number of people say it's not ambitious enough. And I think this is often something we see with EU legislation because it depends where you're coming from. You always want the more ambition in the particular thing you want in, but maybe not in other areas. But yeah, about half of you are saying it's not ambitious enough. So we have more work to do. So with that in mind, Baron, let me go to you. When we're thinking about increasing the proportion of renewables in transport in order to meet these re- emissions reduction goals, We've just seen about 50% of our audience thinks that the Fit for 55 proposal isn't enough. Um, how can the EU scale up renewables uh, in a way that meets those goals? And are, do you think that the Fit for 55 proposals are enough to get us there? I think you're on mute, Bernd. Okay. Maybe before I reply to that, I just one reaction to
1: a comment of uh, yeah, the other participants. I and mean, just to be not misunderstand, overall, our perception of, of um, the promotion of conventional biofuels is that their contribution should be minimized. We don't think that we need to change the RED. So I think it's, we consider it it's, it's a balanced approach. But um, indeed, in the time of the crisis, it might be necessary if we see that there are shortages of food that we might need temporary action in, in the member states um, to get um, yeah, to. To address um, immediate risks, so there, I think the member states as well as the Commission should um, constantly look how this develops. Just to clarify that, because I, I don't think that it was completely understood what I uh, what I uh, said before. On on the targets and the ambition um, for yeah, in the fit for 55 package, I mean you have a long package, but if I leave it to the renewable energy directive. Um, we contacted, or in, in the proposal of the Commission, we have uh, a um, level of ambition for, for renewables and for carbon emissions in transport, which is in line with the achievement of the 55 emission, 55% emission savings objective. However, now, with the crisis in Ukraine, we have conducted uh, another assessment, and we have Indeed, updated our proposal for the overall target for renewables to to 45%. And we have not formally, but um, uh, also set out a new uh, proposal for the ambition level in transport overall to increase the, um, the level of ambition uh, for emission savings or um, to 16%. And with this, it's not emission saving compared to baseline, but the emission intensity. Of energy use in transport. This, however, is not mainly looking there at biofuels, but more at um, renewable hydrogen and um, synthetic fuels, which renewable hydrogen. Hannah,
2: you are now, uh, the the Parliament is now shepherding these proposals through and, of course, can amend
0: and adjust them. Um, So, what do you think is needed to improve Fit for 55 in order? to scale up renewables in a way that can meet our transport emission reduction goals?
2: Uh, I think uh, transport sector is now one of the, it's maybe the most challenging sectors, I have to say, because now at the same time, we should uh, cut emissions uh, very much in aviation, in maritime sector, of course, in road transport also. Especially when we speak about aviation and maritime sector, where we are also now pushing renewables fuels, those sectors, we have to remember that they are global sectors, and we have to avoid, of course, uh, um, uh, that uh, there will be um, movement out from Europe, so we, we have to take care of our competitiveness in same time of our aviation maritime industry. Road transport is maybe more clear because it's more, of course, uh, European thing. Of course, it's global sector, but anyway, they, it's a lot different than aviation and maritime. And then I think we should be much more technology neutral than the Commission has been and also the Parliament. So I'm, I'm not very happy now with the trend that we want, want to have elect- want to have electrification everywhere because um, I think anyway it's quite slowly uh, and as it was said already before that we have to cut the emissions in the current cars, in the current fleet and um, it means that we need very, very... Uh, uh, fast actions here and that's why i think the renewable fuels are playing important role here so i think we should be much more technological ne- neutral when we speak about transport sector because there is so different modes of transport so different regions we have to also take account national and environmental conditions uh, when we make uh, decisions and, and targets to those sectors and especially now i'm thinking that our targets to 2030, that uh, they are really, I think they are super ambitious. Even that it was said here that uh, they are not ambitious enough, but because we don't have yet all the technologies what we think that we will have maybe after 10 or 15 years. So I think it's very challenging to meet the targets of 2030, especially in transport sector, because in aviation we don't have yet enough sustainable cures there. In maritime sector, we are using uh, nearly uh, not any renewables yet. And then in transport sector, it will take time before we have electric cars everywhere. So I think much more actions are needed and we should be very technology neutral when we are setting the goals here. So that's the uh, approach what I have been pushing in transport and industry committee. But as we see, it hasn't been very successful. The parliament is very much now pushing for example, the electric cars, and not leaving room for uh, renewable
0: fuels in the future. Adrian, what do you think about this idea of technological neutrality, um, particularly with the goal of trying to achieve the quickest uh, results? Uh, And and more generally, where would you say that the Fit for 55 proposals could be improved?
3: Thanks, Steve. Uh, Well... (sighs) First of all, I think I'd like to say that um, I understand the technology neutrality uh, request, or, or or the you know the the request for it, or the, the need for it, or the want for it. But um, just going back to something that Valerie said about the food uh, and fuel uh, markets not not being in, in competition. I mean, hearing the 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 the. the our, our learned MEP friend from from Finland saying that Finland are deciding to reduce their biofuel blending at the moment and hearing that the commission are considering, just considering, a, a you know, a reduction in biofuel blending or biofuel use while the war in Ukraine is on. That suggests to me that, you know, there's a, there is some link there. Uh, and so with regards to what would I suggest, you know, you know, uh, people try and do I think what the renewable ethanol people have been doing very well is they've been doing a lot of work on cellulosic ethanol um, you know we see for example abroad that that uh, it's being used as an add-on so it's been a very difficult technology to try and to try and get on top of but it seems to work as an add-on to, to existing first generation and that that's a bit of a help. Um, we also foresee, uh, and, and and also then you can have alcohol to jet. You can you can deoxygenate your your or de- dehydrogenate your 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 ethanol. We also see e fuels is coming in the future, uh, and actually I was in a a meeting with a a, a representative from Maersk, and uh, they're going ahead with with some e methanol, uh, in 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 quite a large scale. So they're avoiding the the let's say this this. The kind of the crush that we're seeing uh, on on some resources because of the the aviation and the the marine sectors are now trying to de- decarbonize um but Maersk have, have have tried to sidestep that by by getting a, a another source of of uh, renewable feedstock and in future then they're looking at renewable ammonia as well so i think that type of uh, thinking outside the box and, and action is 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 very commendable. Uh, and again, I, I, so we're looking at trying to push more advanced uh, biofuels, trying to get some e-fuels up and running. We know they're expensive at the moment, but if you if you look at the greening of the EU grid, it's very impressive. If you look at the reduction in the in the price of renewable electricity, that's very impressive. It's going in the right direction. Um, so those are the, the type of positive things that we would, we would like to see more of. And, and again, we, 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 just, we don't think now is the time to be trying to expand in, into further food and feed, uh, uh, feed stocks. I hope that's uh, answered your question, Dave. Yeah. Let's go back to the
0: food versus fuel debate since you brought it up Adrian. Patrick, Adrian mentioned a couple of countries there that are adjusting their policy in light of the food security problems we're experiencing because of the situation in Ukraine. What would be your explanation for why that's happening? And do you think it is because of food versus fuel concern when it comes to biofuel?
4: Well, on one side, I wanted really to stress the, what also Valerie said, that the issue of, of uh, the remunerations so and the, the additional income uh, coming from uh, biofuels well, in relation to farmers, so the possibility to produce uh, protein-rich byproducts. So this is, this is very important. On the other side, this decision taken by by... Uh, by, by, mem- well, by, by actually they announce of decision coming from member states they are also maybe related to to price issues but but they are somehow uh, it's a short uh well it's, it's a, can be a short uh side reaction uh, in a context where actually as i said before actually uh, pr- producing or through bifolds when the support the bifolds uh, protein rich products, reducing their dependencies and we see for example, animal feed. we have been in a situation with uh, lacking of products. in this respect is also uh, we see a, a counter uh, different different situations. So I think it needs to to, to see the both aspects. Uh, on the other side, uh, losing income for farmers it's, it's complicated in this in this moment. Uh, and actually as I said before, it's important to have a real predictability and looking forward of all of these policies. So it's difficult debate, but uh, really predictability—it's it's important.
0: Valerie, what do you see as the 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 changes? What do you make of the changes that Adrian was just talking about—the policy changes—and do you see it as related to the food versus fuel debate? Sorry,
5: is that again?
0: The the policy changes in the various member states that Adrian was mentioning. What? Do you think they're related to food versus fuel
5: today? I think they are related to the fear and to uh, emotions. I mean, it's 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 true. I mean, if I were to decide, I mean, I would ask myself too. You know, I, I would want to know the facts. But if I don't know the facts, then I would certainly take the the decision like minimizing risks. Uh, so it's it's difficult to to know what, uh, what, what was in the head of the decision maker in Finland who did take this decision. He didn't ask me, me so it, I can't tell. But I don't think it's, uh, it's factual. I mean, factually, if you take the bioethanol uh, production in Europe, we use a bit less than 3% of what the grain we are producing net of co-products. I mean, how factual is that? We, we, we use less than 1.2 percent of the arable land. I mean, if if it would be so simple to eradicate anger by stopping producing biofuel, why on earth didn't we do it before then? You know, because it's more complicated than that. That's the reason. So we have to see the facts. The fact is that we are not uh, using the entire uh, production of grains we produce in the EU.
0: Hannah, do you have any insight into this, the, where the Finnish decision came from?
2: Yes, I, I have to clarify that it, it wasn't because of the food crisis. Of course, food crisis is a very, uh, very serious threat. I think now and we have to do everything we can to support Ukraine here and support their exports. But the Finnish decision was made because of the prices, because of the prices of fuels are so high now that the uh, government wanted to lower the uh, target of renewables there, the blending mandate, because it's still more expensive to produce these uh, renewable fuels. And uh, that's why they wanted to lower the price of the fuels. It was It was the reason. It was very domestic reason in Finland because of the prices, prices of energy. That was the reason. I think also that uh, it's important that we are making, producing uh, the biofuels from waste and residues. So it has to be sustainable. And I know that in Finland the production is based to waste and residues here. Yeah? But it's still it's more expensive to produce this than the traditional fuels, and um, the fossil fuels. And also I think it's important that we invest in research and development in this area because I'm I'm sure that in the future there will be new sources from what we can produce, uh, sustainable biofuels, what we don't have yet.
0: Thanks. That's an important context, I think, for sure. uh, And valuable insight into the the Finnish situation. Well, I want to stay on the food versus fuel topic. I'll take one question from the audience now uh, for Bernd. Um, It's still on this food versus fuel subject. So, uh, Simon Hoita asks, uh, The Fit for 55 uh, proposes to dedicate 20% of EU cropland to energy crops. That can't be the EU's answer to solve climate change. It has a great negative effect on the climate, conversion of nature, and on global food security. Food demand is increasing 50% in 2050. We shouldn't use food and feed for energy. So Bernd, could you address that, the, the, the 20% uh cropland figure? What is the commission's justification for that?
1: I, I just think that, that this figure is not, well, our, not in line with our assessment. I not, don't know how this figure was calculated so we don't consider that that we require
4: 20 percent of the land to produce food and feed crops or energy
5: crops to meet our targets
0: valerie you also don't see this in
5: the the proposals uh, that's also the complication of the discussion is that so many people say so many wrong things so it's already complicated and then if you add uh, misinformation on top of everything—it becomes very complex to see through uh, the right way forward. And, and just to come back on your uh, issue of food versus fuel, I mean, we uh, are back again. In 2011, we had the same discussion: food versus fuel. We had the, and uh, and we accused biofuels. I mean, it was appalling—the the, the campaigns and it was terrible back then. I remember very well. And um, and then experts concluded that um, biofuels had very little to do with what happened in Mexico or you know it was mostly speculation it was most mostly uh, the uh, very high uh, energy prices it had nothing to do or very little let's be uh, wise here, very little to do with biofuels so and now we are going back again in the same situation with the same attacks which are very easy to make but very much more complicated to decipher and to you know to explain because it's complex it's easy to say oh my god what goes here doesn't go there because anybody can say that but just to explain why things that are here cannot go there or vice versa requires much more information and back i mean since 2011 the commission has Examine this question of indirect land use change, and and, uh, and the Commission is making reports every year or two years, uh, very uh, looking into details as to uh, whether the uh, uh, biofuel program in in the EU has any impact on food prices and food availability, and. Nothing has been uh, identified as a negative impact of biofuels. To the contrary, these reports, the last one says, no, uh, to the contrary, food prices have collapsed. Okay, now we are in a different situation. Hopefully, it's conjunctural. Hopefully, it's a moment that is not going to last. Hopefully, I mean, we can only hope. And I understand, I'm not an expert, is the expert, I'm not an expert, but I read the press, and I understand that they are raw materials, it's just the, you know, the logistics is uh, disrupted, etc., etc. So hopefully, we are going to find a solution, hopefully. I don't have a crystal ball, so I'm ca- careful here, but why would we give um, structural response to a conjunctural response when we know that bioethanol has so many um, benefits to bring to society? including securing our food security, which is absurd in a way, because we are kind of going in circle here. Uh, That's that's, that's really, I think, you know what I think we should be doing in the EU, we should talk more, you know, DG Energy, DG Agriculture, I've always said that we should have all these people together and make things work. And... I mean I don't I was talking to somebody in India and I said how do you do they perceive biofuels in your country do they see it as a fuel versus fuel no no so why in the EU do we see that something that nobody sees aside from the EU you know they see the benefit the synergies they don't see the opposition they see the synergies
0: let me put another audience question on the same topic. Patrick, this question is for you. It comes from Marilda Daskali from BirdLife. Uh, Mr. Pagani, how can you say that crop-based biofuels can help the food crisis when it competes directly with human food?
4: <laughs> no, uh, part one one... One point, is as Varie was saying, so the really the, the, the land used for, for byproducts is a minimum part of all. So we speak about three, three, three percent out of 170 million of uh, of land. Uh, on the issue, the issue of food security, it's more of the revenue. It's also revenue for farmers, as I was saying. So particularly, if we think of uh, yes, high-rich, uh, by, well, high-rich protein byproducts in this sense. In this respect, there is a support to the activity of farmers, support also to to, uh, to by-products, uh, which after we, we would have need to to import them uh, with different standards, and it somehow also we supporting the the revenue of farmers, support the activity, not going out of business, supporting production, supporting continuing the activity in this difficult time, also in this difficult time. So this is a, uh, this is a situation. On the other side, it is also important to. The situation in the dramatic situation in in uh, in um, in russia well in ukraine with the invasion of russia where on one side also the farmers were even targeted it's really dramatic in the eu it's clear we don't have a food security concern in the sense it's uh, this must be clear There's an issue of affordability also recognized by the Commission. So this is an important topic where we have all the the number of inputs that are are increasingly going from from fertilizers for for fuel. And so this is also a topic of of, uh, of food affordability in the EU. And the situation is is, uh, uh, as recognized also by all the international organizations. On third countries, highly dependent, dependent. this is really uh, the difficult situation.
0: So we know that uh, since this has been a a big issue since 2011, as you mentioned, um, a lot of the focus has shifted toward advanced biofuels, uh, which is the subject of the next question that's come in from the audience. Um, Adrian, I'm going to put this question to you. Uh, The question is from Fernando José Neto da Silva. Do we have enough material resources for advanced biofuels to produce a significant amount? Um, Adrian, uh, what do you think about that?
3: Thanks, Dave. Um, well, just to briefly mention what we, we, we had talked about, which is the the indirect usages or the, you know, the, the conflagration between food and feed. China are, are, you know, they modify their biofuel production if they're using first generation feedstocks in order to not overload their internal or their, their own uh, food and feedstock supplies. And I understand it's a difficult uh, topic and I, I you know, I, I've come from industry originally, but um, with regards to, to, to understanding displacement or with regards to using something for another use, we see a very clear example of that at the moment, which is the used cooking oil market in the EU because the aviation people are are trying to get their hands on that used cooking oil and, and to put it into planes. But at the moment, the vast majority of it is is being, if not all of it, is being used to make road fuel, and the vast majority of that is is being used to make a, a chemically a fuel chemical which can't be used in airplanes. So essentially, if we take that used cooking oil and try and put it in airplanes, the people who are making that used cooking oil biodiesel at the moment, they're not just simply going to be able to get more used cooking oil because it's. Uh, it's a rigid supply. It's got a, we, Unless we demand people eat chips for breakfast, dinner, and tea, we won't have enough used cooking oil. So uh, with regards to the question, um, there is a, a significant amount of waste material. There's a huge amount of cellulosic material. Um, the, the questioner is right. I don't actually have the figures off the top of my head, but we can do a huge amount with very low-quality materials. Uh, We do need to be careful that the materials aren't already being used at the moment, maybe in a combined heat and power plant or something, so that we don't suddenly grab all of that material and then that uh, factory that was burning it or using it for energy has to switch on a natural gas um, supply or or, or combustion unit. So uh, I I would say it's it's quite significant. I think there are technological and price challenges when you look at, at, at advanced biofuels. But again, it, it, it skips out from the, 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 this current topic or this current difficulty we're considering, which is, in, in the current crisis, the, the exacerbating possibly the, the, the food prices. Um, and also, a little bit further down the line, we look at something like e-fuels, again, I think could be a big help. Valerie, uh,
0: what's, do you think that there are enough material resources for advanced biofuels?
5: You know what? I think the question says a lot about what we are doing wrong. Because of everything, there will be not enough. There is not enough raw materials, agricultural. There is not enough waste. If you are to do everything with waste, if you are going into a single solution-based approach, then you never have enough because the you know, the consumption will be too high, and so you will never have enough raw materials, agricultural, you will never have enough straw or waste or anything. You will not enough have, have not enough electricity green. I mean, uh, that's why now we are saying, oh my God, nuclear energy is green, because we need energy, we don't have energy. We will never have enough rare earth or rare materials, because we don't have any, first of all, and there, there will be a huge demand. So, you see... This question, for me, boils down to the point that we need to diversify the alternatives. Because the more you diversify, the less this question is relevant. Because you will have a little bit of everything. Well, not extensively, because you have to select what is most cost-effective, of course. But if you go just for one solution, like I would never say, let's go full bioethanol. This would be a nonsense. Going 100% electric is going to be a nonsense as well, because we don't have anything that we need to produce those cars. First place, we don't have money. (laughs) So, I mean, we have spent it all uh, on COVID. Uh, So, we will be in trouble, because we are putting ourselves in, in a situation where we will be completely dependent. We've done them, we've been there already in the past, being dependent on oil, Uh, resources which was polluting and which we didn't have practically a single drop-off. And so we realized, oh, after some years, God, it's bad for the climate and uh, we are stuck, uh, politically speaking, uh, you know, we don't control prices, blah, blah, blah. And, okay, so we can make mistakes. But doing it again by you know, Driving the EU into one single solution approach, I think it's. I hope I'm wrong because that will be, you know, the Chinese must be laughing at the moment. They must be thinking, what are they doing? So that's um, so that, that's my answer to your question.
0: Let's go online to Bernt next. Bernd, there's an audience question for you that's very specific. Uh, this is from Anna Venturini from EBA. Uh, Bernd, considering the theme of today's discussion, legal clarity for operators over the status of advanced feedstock is key, can the commission give a timeline on Annex 9 of the Renewable Energy Directive 2?
1: Well, I mean, there, first of all, I think I need again to react to to some of the statements made before, if this is allowed. Um, It was argued that, that the Commission has said that, uh, well, food and feed crops don't have uh, a significant impact on on prices. And there this has to be put into the context as indeed in, in this phase we had earlier. Our consideration was that, that the overall market from the EU and the, the overall picture of global production is relatively small, so that this has not an Significant impact on on food prices. However, what we had always regarding with regard to sustainability, we had environmental concerns uh, about the use of food and feed crops, and this is why we have introduced all of these limitations and the phase out of high isotope risk um, feedstocks uh, for counting parts the targets. And there, well, we came to a conclusion to have their a uh, balanced policy. Uh, in place, which also allows member states to react to situations that we have currently, to, to reduce um, their demand for feed crops uh, by reducing um, the, the use of these fuels in such situations. So this flexibility is inbuilt in the RET. And If you want to say that there's a positive contribution of the biofuel policy in this regard to fuel security, then it is this, you could react, gives you some flexibility to reduce production of conventional biofuels in such a moment in order to react to this this, uh, terrible market situation. But that's it, so we are really thinking there, there are concerns about um, conventional biofuels. We do not want to increase them. we don't see it as a solution to to meet uh, well overall by increasing financial biofuels and kind the of, uh, food versus fuel situation or to, to supply the food market. But um, on the question on Annex Nine, this is indeed of our to-do list, and um, we hope that we will come um, yeah after the summer break with with uh, finalization of our review, which could then also. Um, be then the proposal for adding additional feedstocks. So the work is still ongoing. We have focused uh, to some extent on on other matters before, basically on the uh, hydrogen questions, but this is now on our plate and we hope that we will have something to discuss after the summer break.
0: Okay. Our Our next next question question is for Adrian. Adrian. This This is is a question question of clarification. So it comes from Olivier Mace. Mace. Did I understand correctly, Adrian, that you think cover crops or intermediate crops should be managed as food crops? Can you explain the reasons why you recommend this when cover crops do not use initial additional land and indeed protect soil carbon between crop rotations?
3: I say, Yeah, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm with the ICCT about less than a year, so it was new, this was new information to me and uh, I had previously thought that intermediate crops sounded like a, a, a promising answer, um, you know, especially if you didn't damage the soil carbon, or if you didn't if you did, if it didn't take too much too much energy and work to, to, to produce them. But um, I, I was personally surprised to find that that uh, they exist and they exist on mass at the moment. And the clearest example of that is in Brazil, where soy both soybeans. And corn are planted as as intermediate crops,
4: and they're used in in, in the food and feed markets.
3: So um, if you allow intermediate crops under the the current loose definition, uh, our modelling shows that you're going to get a huge amount of Argentinian or, or South American soybean uh, and 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 um, uh, and corn um, coming into the, the market. So, the, I th- and I don't think that's the intention of the intermediate crop uh, uh, um, proposal. Um, so, essentially, you would be taking food and feed crops and and, and importing them into to make biofuels, and and we don't think that that's. Uh, uh, a positive move. We, we think there are other options and that's why we're, we're concerned about the, the Intermediate Cross, at least with the, the current definition.
0: We well, have a next question, question here that, that is for both Valerie and, and Hannah. Uh, Hannah, I'll put, I'll put this, this to you first. first. Uh, since you're involved in these decisions right now. um, What do you think about the possible ban on combustion engines for new cars from 2035 as recently voted in the European Parliament? Is this the end of bioethanol for transports? In fact, is the issue with combustion engines or is it with fossil fuels? Um, Hannah, maybe you could clarify that. I mean, my impression is this technically isn't a ban on combustion engines. It's just a requirement for zero emissions. And I was wondering this myself. How does this affect biofuels from 2035?
2: Mm. Yes, uh, we were voting on, on plenary last week about this topic, and I was uh, voting against the 100% target, so I was voting in favor of 90%. And the reason was that uh, I wanted to leave room uh, to other the fuels also, not only for hydrogen and electrification. So I, I think that there is still a need for biogas and for Renewable fuels, and that's why I was supporting the ninety percent target. But as we know, uh, majority was supporting hundred percent. But this is is still um, again, it's it's a question of uh, technology neutrality. What I say that it's it's missing often when we speak about uh, uh, transport issues. Uh, Many people they would like to. Uh, choose winners and losers, but I think it's better that we as uh, decision makers that we we set the targets and then the industry, they will find the most efficient way to meet the targets. And uh, when we speak about climate targets, I think it's very, very important that we are looking carefully to environmental impacts, but at the same time, it's important that our decisions, they are also uh, sustainable in economically and in a sustain, uh, social way, so we have to look all these three parts tri- also. They have to be sustainable uh, environmentally, but also when we look the economy and social social aspects of the decisions, otherwise they are not sustainable.
0: Valerie, um, I know many people consider the Parliament's position to be effectively a de facto mandate for electric vehicles. Uh, what is your reading of the Parliament's 100% phase-out 2035 position, is, would that um, preclude bioethanol?
5: Well, first of all, um, a number of stakeholders have requested that the 100% or the 90% be calculated on a fair basis, meaning on a full life cycle analysis. I mean, there's... Um, a recurrent way of doing things in the EU where you have a certain methodology in one way and another methodology. When we say that bioethanol reduces greenhouse gas emission by 77 I think it's now percent compared to gasoline, it's on a well to wheel basis. You
4: know? So
5: on the full life cycle of the production, of the crop and the transportation, blah, 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 all across the, the spectrum. Now... If we say that an electric car is zero emission just because you measure uh, emissions at the tailpipe, which the car doesn't have, and you ignore completely all the upstream emissions, this is not fair. This is not fair, this is wrong. And especially when we know, because some analysis have been made, uh, and the Commission knows, because the Commission has already also made those calculations, that if you take... The life cycle analysis of the car, uh, including the battery, of course, of the electricity produced. Um, And if you compare the emissions to uh, a car which would be uh, an hybrid rechargeable that that would run on E85 half of its time, then the emissions of that car, hybrid, flex, uh, rechargeable, today is much less than an electric car. And so the study has uh, examined the evolution of these uh, emissions uh, until 2040, because you have to take into account you know, potential uh, improvements in many uh, technological uh, you know, aspects. And even then, when you take all the potential uh, improvement that can be made, uh, either the uh, electric vehicle is, as emitting, uh, is emitting as much emission as the uh, hybrid flex uh, E85 car, or a little bit more. Well, let's say they are equal. So, factually, there is no reason to discriminate. That's something that I wanted to clarify. Then, to answer your question, no, I don't think that's the end of biofuels. because, as I said, by 2030, the commission itself that there would be about 80. Probably it's going to be more, and it's going to be much more than 2030, because today, as we speak, most people buy uh, internal combustion engine or flex. I mean, uh, hybrid. Hybrid or flex in France, they do. Uh, and today we are in 2020, and if you calculate that a car is uh, twen- 10 to 12 years' uh, you know, lifetime, uh, the lifespan of a, a current EU, then it, you know, it brings us to uh, 2033, 20, 24, whatever. So uh, 2030, 2035 at best. And imagine that back then, uh, when we reach 2035, imagine that the consumer is left with only one option: electric vehicle. Imagine, ba- imagine that back, when we get there, it's too expensive for that consumer they don't have enough rechargeable you know, uh, chargers all across the EU, including in remote areas, then what is this consumer going to do? He's going to keep his car as much as possible. So we're talking far, uh, 2040, perhaps even more, I don't know. And when we get there, you know, we'll perhaps change the course of things. So no... It's not the end of bioethanol, and especially with the looming crisis and you know uh, inflation, people people can't make hands meet. So you know, asking them to invest in electricity as we speak, it's complicated.
0: Bernd, uh, let me put this to you. So the, the Parliament's position uh, closely matches the Commission's proposal. How do you respond to the criticism that a 100% phase-out is not technological neutrality, it's effectively an electric mandate. Uh, And this goes along with an audience question from Neil, who says, given that life cycle analysis of the vehicle fleet emissions will not be a requirement until the late 2020s, how can the Commission be so certain that electrification of road transport is the primary solution to reducing emissions?
1: Well, I mean, we we need to take into account that that we have a very ambitious Target in the long term to become really fully decarbonized, having a a net zero um, emission footprint in all of Europe, and that's that's a major challenge. And we we know that that we have obviously a limited uh, amount of resources, and we need to decide where to put them. And fuels will be based on molecules will be difficult to produce. So we should only use them in those
2: sectors where um, other alternatives are not so easily available. So this is
1: the aviation, this is, this is shipping, this is industry also for, not only for energy, but also as a feedstock. And therefore we, we really have high hopes um, that electrification Will be also a particular of of road transport and passenger cars, will will be a rather easy solution actually, and really the the dominant solution to deconalize road transport. Because um, this, or the the electric engine, has a very high efficiency, it also can contribute to the overall energy energy system as a whole, because the batteries can also be used as uh, for demand response, you can have intelligent systems to make use of them. Um, so even if you, if you could argue, I mean, and there I think the experts differ in their views how much an electric car currently saves uh, with regard to emissions. I mean, I guess there, depending on the assumptions, where, where you go and how do you use it, what does the emission mix, you can come to a very different conclusions. But it's clear with that electricity is one sector where we have much more potential to produce more renewables. And so our, our mixture will become cleaner and cleaner and we cannot only wait until it's fully clean before we start to electrify. But we need to electrify quick now in order to have everything um, uh, in place by, by mid-35 um, to go really full electric. It is true that obviously we will continue to rely uh, on fuels in the, uh, yeah, in the current stock of cars and they will be there for a longer time. Uh, Biofuels will play a role there. Um, but then, per-a-per, per, um, they can be then switched to, to be used in other
0: sectors. Um, Adrian, what is your thought on this? Um, do you think that um, the, the target for 2035 should be more flexible, or do you think the Parliament's and Commission's approach is the best? I'd
3: say, well, actually, uh, I, I, funnily enough, I'm working on this example. Topic at the moment for the ICCT. I'm doing an LCA study uh, of of electrification and, and possible fuel cell use in heavy duty vehicles. Um, and the the difference, if we just talk about electric, uh, let's say heavy duty vehicles, which is a similar case to the to the to the light duty sector, the difference is huge. Uh, so the savings are, are considerable, um, I understand Valerie's point about calling them the, the emissions uh, zero at the moment. But um, even if you use electricity from the EU grid, um, I, I actually have a report on this I'm drafting, it will be out very soon. I'm a little bit late for it, and, and after this video call I have to try and explain to my boss why I'm late. But the overview of it is is that uh, electricity, because the EU grid... Is getting so green, and if you if you just look at a, a graph of that from from 1990 to now, it's it's extremely impressive. Um, so so even if you use electricity from the EU grid, uh, you're you're making uh, we've estimated about sixty percent of a saving compared to a diesel truck at the moment. So it's uh, it's it's significant, and, and you could you could even argue, okay, Adrian, if your, your figures are up by fifty percent, which which would be a, a colossal margin of error. It's still a, a saving of about thirty percent. But um, when it comes to biofuels, we know there are some biofuels that that can make a positive impact. We, you know, we're particularly interested in advanced biofuels. But the problem is, is that the demand for for for, for fuel in the EU sector, the the the. the uh, transport sector is just utterly colossal. So while you may be able to have an E85 car, which is very, very low emissions, especially if you've got cellulosic ethanol, that's fine. But, uh, um, you know, if you look at a country like Germany, it, it, the demand is just absolutely colossal. So, uh, and, and the, I should mention as well, the greenhouse gas savings get even better if you, if you manage to use only 100% renewable electricity. Um, but so, so the basic point is, if you're looking at an LCA of of a, a diesel or, or fossil fuel car versus electric, the biggest amount of those emissions come from the vehicle in use, so the diesel combustion or the gasoline combustion, and then the, the electricity use, and 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 the figures really are massively in favour of of electric vehicles. I will admit there are questions about you know how do we get enough renewable electricity. We're, you know, the EU is trying to work towards that, like Burns said, but um, you know, if you look at a, an LCA and you try to make sure that the LCA is looking at, let's say, Europe as a whole, the answer is, is, is very much in the favour of all the electric vehicles. Um, so I, I, I would think that from that point of view, it's positive what the Commission are trying to do.
0: So the next audience question is for Patrick. This question is from Barbara Smilagic. Um, recent studies, such as the one by Duh in Germany on carbon sequestration, show that rewilding would store much more carbon than what is being mitigated by the bioethanol production. Why then use this land for bioethanol production?
4: Okay, it's a it's a complicated question. With uh, maybe on the car- carbon sequestration of uh, of bioethanol, maybe I can pass it to Valeria, but we can see. In any case one side we, we really see that there is a potential on the carbon sequestration coming from, coming from the farming sector, coming from... Uh, and this uh, we need, think needs to be developed, this is, the, this is very important. We think there is not much clarity still on it, and so that's why we are waiting also. It's important that looking to other pieces of legislation which are not in the FITO-85, uh, to carbon farming, it's good to have uh, clarity in this aspect. So we think that on the agricultural side, and on crops, there's a possibility to, there's a potential to carbon sequestrate. There's need clarity. There are a lot of pilot projects now, or some projects ongoing. Uh, if we think that the first uh, legislative initiative coming from the, well, not initiative, the the word carbon farming was put in a, uh, in the farm-to-fork strategy in 2020. Uh, so there is a lot uh, to do, a lot to clarity, but there is an important contribution to go, both to sequestrate to so reduce the emission but also to yes, to sequestrate and to reduce the emissions yeah
0: good well we're just about out of time so i'd really like to get some concluding thoughts from each of the panelists Uh, To get your kind of key takeaways here today, I think we've heard a lot about the different ideas about the food versus fuel debate and also how it fits into the the current uh, food security crisis that we're experiencing because of the war. And then we've also heard a lot about recent legislation in the Fit for 55 proposals and how it's going to impact uh, biofuels. Um, Bernd, let me turn to you first. What would you say is your, your key takeaway from today's discussion? Oh, you're on mute again.
1: Maybe I should not mute each <laughs> time. I mean, I think my key takeaway is that obviously that this, all these these questions are, are complex and you have different interests from different sectors at, at stake. And I mean, this needs to be taken seriously. But on the other hand, I mean, it is clear that we have um, a very, very clear strategy and we also need to give signals for a clear way forward in, in the different... Um, yes, yeah, sectors for the strategies that we want to follow to decarbonize. and um, there, well, the, the Commission's proposal set the right level. They they direct will direct investments in the areas where we need them, and for us, this is clearly the question of direct electrification in all sectors where you can electrify promotion of renewable fuels in those sectors where, where electrification is difficult and there we need to focus uh, on those fuels um, which do not have, well, do not rely on, on food and feed crops because we have seen that there is that there is a challenge uh, in this area and, and more on advanced biofuels.
0: Thanks, Bernd. So I think Hannah had to head out. So let's go to Adrian next. Adrian, what are your concluding thoughts today?
3: Uh, well, thank you for, for inviting me today. It's, it's been a pleasure and an honor to be on the panel. Um, I think our points really are that we, we would like to ensure that the Fit for 55 package doesn't increase the demand for food-based biofuels. Uh, and within that, we're, 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 we're worried about intermediate crops uh, and one thing maybe I possibly wasn't clear on earlier on is that if we do start as our modeling suggests and and considering the, the the present wording if we do start bringing in a lot of intermediate crops that will kind of stifle the the, the work or the demand for developing uh, more advanced biofuels and we have seen that the the you know the cellulosic ethanol industry they've been they've been trying quite a bit and 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 uh, you know, advanced biofuels in general, we think from genuine waste can be a, a, a good step forward, which doesn't jump in on 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 oh, without beginning the whole debate again. It doesn't jump in or 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 uh, you know cause concerns about increasing the cost of food. Um, the other point uh, I made was just about bio- biomass resources are constrained, and so we think we need to be wise how we use our domestic biomass and uh, going further into the future then with the reduce, reducing cost of renewable electricity we think uh, e-fuels can be can be extremely helpful in those hard to decarbonize sectors thank you patrick what's your
4: key takeaway from today's discussion yeah first thanks a lot it was a very interesting debate i think uh, the key well conclusion uh, we can say there's space for both so biofuels and food production and basically, it's important to, to. It's clear that we need a transition. We need time for this transition. We need a, a balanced sustainability in the sense that takes into consideration the social, economic, and uh, environmental dimension. So, this is, I think is the, the right direction to go. Thanks.
0: And Valerie, what are your concluding
4: thoughts?
5: Well, my conclusion is um, we have to look at the big picture, and uh, it's a complex issue. We we kept we keep repeating it, but. Uh, but I'm not sure we, we get the right approach to, you know, to, to approach this complex issue. Um, and um, actually I had a question, you know, when you asked this question about what was my take, key takeaway, and I was thinking, imagine there is no more biofuels, because we say no more tomorrow. End of discussion. Do you think that these raw materials will be available for food production, for... You know, the uses and the purposes that we think they should be going to. Uh, I don't know. I'm not sure. Because uh, farmers, to produce agricultural raw materials, which are intended primarily to feed us, they need to be rewarded decently. And if we don't, if we, if we have this kind of naive uh, and uh, uh, a bit uh, theoretical you know, theoretically I agree, you know, everybody should have uh, food, that's obvious. Nobody is going to contest that, but, but in practical, uh, in the practical reality, it, it's not the case. And uh, I'm not sure that just saying stop producing biofuels, first generation biofuels is going to solve the problem. To the contrary, that's what I'm saying. It's going to be a problem in Europe because farmers, they will lose an important outlet and biorefineries as i said producing starch and sugar will lose a very important market for them to manage the volatility of everything <laughs> everything is volatile i mean if you you can't ask an industry like the agricultural like agriculture and all the transformation industry to be competitive uh, and not having alternative options, uh, you know, diversification of of, uh, of outlets, it doesn't fit, doesn't you know, add up. So we have to be consistent. We have to be looking at the bigger picture, and we have to see bioethanol as what it is, and and that's again, it's facts. It decarbonizes. It re- it helps contributes to reduce our oil imports and it strengthens our food security. Plus, it gives a lot of work. Jobs in rural areas, etc., etc. I mean, there are many, uh, you know, social, and, uh, and it's cheap. I mean, you know, so before we make any hasty decisions and reduce it more and more and more, because I, I hear that, you know, every time you come with an argument, there is an argument. And I believe that behind everything, there is... Um kind of a dogma, you know we don 't want some people don 't want food agricultural raw materials to be used as energy that 's bottom line what what it is, and well that 's their right, but that 's not necessarily the right thing to do well, on that note let 's put a final
0: survey question to the audience to get a sense of where the audience is uh, at the end of this discussion. So this next, the last survey question is, what role should sustainable crop-based biofuels play in EU da- decarbonization? Should it be a major role and thereby giving more flexibility for member states to meet these transport targets in any way they see fit? Should it just have a partial role, allowing the use to meet targets under the current cap but with limitations? Or should it have a decreasing role, reducing the cap on crop-based biofuels or phasing them out entirely, uh, and then going to that world that Valerie was uh, uh, envisioning with no biofuels? Let's wait a little bit more for the survey results to come in. So about half of you think that it should play a major role, and therefore uh, there should be more flexibility in the EU policy, uh, while about 40% say uh, actually it should just have a partial role that there should be some limitations given the concerns. And uh, 13% of you say a decreasing role that we need caps and we need to phase it out. Very interesting result there. I want to thank all of our panelists for some great uh, comments and interventions. Also, the audience, we had tons of questions coming in here on Slido, so I want to thank you all for some great uh, questions. How about a round of applause for our panelists? And for those of you here in the room, uh, I would welcome you outside into the beautiful weather. For those of you watching online, thank you for spending uh, the last 90 minutes with us. And I wish you all an excellent evening. Take care.
3: Thank you.